Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Robin Alpen, who was raised in the Religious Society of Friends, also known as Quakers. She works with anti-racism organizations in her home community and among Quakers, and is the director of training at the Center for the Study of White American Culture. Robin co-designed and co-leads a series of workshops on what white people can do about racism. She has co-presented workshops at the annual White Privilege Conference and was recruited by professors at Vassar College to help develop and teach an off-campus class for educators on how to talk about race with children. In 2000, Robin was visiting an incarcerated Black man in prison and later on hosted him in her home. Robin has raised four anti-racist white children who teach her every day how to make the world a better place to live. Welcome, Robin. Thanks so much, Karin. I really appreciate your inviting me on the show. And so you are involved in anti-racist work. What got you started? Um, The fact that I was raised in a Quaker family has a lot to do with that. Uh, As a child, I was taught that there was what we called at the time racial prejudice against people of color and that that was wrong and that I should, uh, you know, not be involved in that and do what I could to stop it. It wasn't really, though, until about the year 1999 that I discovered that uh, up until then, I had been trying to live a non-racist life, you might call it, but that actually isn't possible. It was in 1999, 2000, that I had a couple of experiences, both in the Quaker community and in another community I'm very involved in, where people of color talked about how they had experienced racism in those communities that I was part of and that were beloved to me. And that's when I began to understand about systemic racism and about the fact that even if I personally did not ever do anything wrong, which uh, that's impossible, but even if I didn't, I'm still colluding with systemic racism. So that's when I got really interested in, okay, if I am part of this problem, what can I do about solving it? And then what was your next step? Was your first step to decide to go into prisons and visit people incarcerated or was there something before that? The decision to visit was actually unrelated at the time, uh, but it happened about the same time and turned out to be very important to the rest of my journey. It happened that about the same time that my consciousness was being raised about racism and systemic racism, 
my Quaker meeting had been approached by a Black man who attended the Quaker meetings in prison and who had requested membership in our meeting. And our meeting, which was almost entirely white people, declined his request for membership. And I stood up and said, well, this is not the kind of message that you can just you know, send him in a letter. You're gonna need to go personally and tell him we've declined your request. So of course, the next thing that happened was that I was named to the committee of people <laughs> to go there <laughs> and tell him, <laughs> um, of course. Well, and I was terrified. I have to tell you, I, I had never been to a prison or I think even a jail and I, I just was terrified. And obviously I'm not even the one who was getting incarcerated, but it was just terrifying to me. But I went and when I met the man, I'm going to call him Tom. Uh, When I met him, I was just bowled over by what an amazing human being he was. And so we became friends and it was learning from him as a black man who had come up through many, many of the difficulties of life that people of color experience in our country. It was from him that I began to learn up close and personal about how racism works and how anti-racism works. And I think you said quite a few interesting things here because I was wondering, so if you grew up in a Quaker community and anti-racism was important then did you grow up in a diverse environment because many white people in the U.S. actually don't and also when you said that the Quaker community was mostly was actually all white was it the first time that you came in contact with so many people of color when you went into prison, because we do know that in the prison population, there is a huge number of people of color. Yes. So I grew up in a predominantly white community. I did not have a diverse childhood at all. It is true that because of my family being Quaker and having some attention to the issue of racism, I did have friends in my childhood that I might not have had otherwise. By the time I got to high school, there was, I think, two Black people in my high school class, and one of them was dating my best friend and hanging out at my house. So, you know, yes, very white surround, and um, it did make a difference, uh, at least a little bit, that um, my family had some openness to these issues. Then I'm wondering, when you did go into prison and you came in contact with people of color, and I'm sure they shared stories, what did you learn about what their upbringing was like? And what if it surprised you because you might have not ever heard it before? I'm going to have to think hard about the surprises because this is now uh, 20 years ago that I first started going to prison and I don't still go in anymore. But I wanted to start off by saying that it was an education immediately when I went to visit Tom because indeed in the visiting room where you come in and it's like a large multi-purpose room and there are all these tables, about card table sized tables with four chairs around them that are scattered around the room. Maybe in that particular visiting room, maybe 20 tables. And then at one end, you have the guard who's sitting at his little desk podium. So all of the tables were full and 
at least 75% of the people in the room were people of color, particularly black people. You know, there were very few white people in there. So it was such a visual impact for me. I didn't know very much then about the statistics. I didn't know about that one out of three black men is under the control and supervision of what I call the criminal injustice system. And I didn't know that statistically people of color commit crime at about the same rate as white people. That's a very, very broad general statement, but it's not like black people and people of color are criminal and that's why the prison was full of them. So I definitely began to pay attention to what is it that's going on here? When you say surprises, um, speaking about Tom in particular, and I did eventually end up visiting eight or nine different men who were incarcerated. All of them were black men, but Tom in particular is the person I knew the best and his childhood. And uh, one of the things that I learned was that he actually had something of a criminal record before he was incarcerated. And by the way, he insisted on his innocence the entire time. And I believe him. He was a black man in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it didn't help that he did already have a criminal record. And that was partly because having grown up as an adoptee and had many different uh, challenges in his life, some of which came down to being a person of color, he did sometimes engage in criminal behavior and got caught for it. But he also often was the black man who was nearest at hand and got rounded up when they were looking for somebody. At his trial, the one that ultimately sent him to prison, he told me this over and over. It was you know, clearly a very traumatic incident to be sent to prison for 25 to life when you didn't do it. At his trial, a couple of the jurors were sleeping part of the time, visibly sleeping. And uh, he also, there was a sketch of the person who had committed the crime, a person with multiple tattoos. My friend had zero tattoos. So, you know, it's such a simple thing as that. And yet he wound up ultimately doing 27 years in prison. Yeah, what you were saying, I think by now we have heard this in many incidences, right? So it is possible that people go to prison and they are innocent and they might even serve the whole time. I'm wondering, you know, him in this situation, how, how did he handle this? I'm picturing myself, if I'd be punished for something I didn't do, nobody would be listening to me and believing me. How would I be able to not act out? How would I find something to hold on to? How did he do that? That is a really important question. I want to start by actually qualifying about his innocence. Not qualifying. I want to say something more about his innocence because um, I'll never forget that when he ultimately came out of prison and moved in to live in my home for three years, his parole officer called me up before. Tom actually moved in with us and, you know, just wanted to make sure that the situation was all secure and we knew what we were doing and stuff like that. And I told him that Tom was innocent of the crime and he snorted and said, that's what they all say. 
I'm here to tell you that of those eight or nine other people that I visited in prison, not one single one of them protested his innocence. And a few of them talked to me in detail about what had happened and why. So, you know, it's, it's just um, a convenient myth that only people who did something are locked up in our prisons. So what did Tom do? One of the main things that he did was to engage deeply in spiritual life. And by the time I met him, which was um, about 25 years into his sentence, he was principally a devotee of a Hindu sect. Tom was following a particular guru, a woman named Guru Mai. She leads the Siddha Yoga sect of Hinduism. She gave him an, a, a spiritual name, which is what he went by, not Tom, and um, he followed her teachings religiously, literally. That was a, a huge part of how he not only survived, but to the extent that one can, he thrived in prison. He did his very best to be the best human being he could possibly be, which did not mean by any chance uh, swallowing his anger and indignation at the unrighteousness of his situation. He talked about it at every possible opportunity while he was in prison that I do not belong here. Get me out. So, you know, that was very strong for him, but so was his attempt to be compassionate, uh, to understand the deeper uh, wisdom in life, and particularly to reach out and lift up other people. The uh, second person that I got to know the best, who I will call Greg, was very much influenced by Tom's spiritual teachings, and many other incarcerated people were while he was there. He found a way to take care of his mental health, because I think that's probably, it's not at the basis of how do you survive a prison, even if you committed the crime, right? That's right. And, and I'm also wondering, do you know how old he was when he entered prison? Uh, he was in his early 20s. I don't recall exactly, but 22, 23. So he was in his 20s. He then spent over 20 years inside, then he came back. And 20 years is a long stretch of time. What was his education and his chances to find jobs and take care of himself like before he went into prison? And then being away from society that keeps developing, how was that experience for him coming out and you know, looking around at the changed world, I'm sure technology changed dramatically. Do you mind if I go back just a moment to the previous question? <laughs> There's one other thing, another story that he told me so often, it was so important to him about how he kept his mental health and survived and thrived. He told me that he would frequently find opportunities to ever so slightly break the rules. Not enough to get himself a so-called ticket, which lands you in solitary, which is horrifying. You don't want that. But the example he gave that he did the most often is that there would be places in the prison where uh, the incarcerated men would be, for instance, in a line to go to, in the corridor to go to lunch, for instance, and there would be an actual line on the floor 
And they were not allowed to step across that line until it was time to go to lunch. And he would work himself up there and edge one toe ever so slightly. And this was a way that he had of, you know, retaining some control over his life, his physical space, you know, asserting that you are not going to own me. As to what happened when he came out, I, I have to say, and actually it was closer to 30 years. He served 27 years and it was a miracle, a straight up miracle that the parole board that saw him for his second parole review, that the um, black woman who was at the head of the parole board did something extremely unusual for a man in his case. And she said, it looks like you've had a lot of hard knocks. We're going to give you a chance. And frankly, his, his prison record was stellar, stellar. So it wasn't like she was being crazy, but the system is crazy. And typically a guy in his position, they would just keep passing him, you know, year after year. I mean, passing over him for parole. So anyway, he was miraculously paroled after 27 years. And I have to say, he was not in good shape. Not at all after that. Mentally, physically, emotionally, psychically, he, he would tell you, I believe that if he were here, he would tell you he was very damaged goods at that point. And so he did not look for work. Um, he was, you know, given psychiatric evaluations that really this man is not fit to work. Uh, he was able to get SSI. Um, and other forms of aid. Thank goodness the social network was there to look after him and support him. I mean, I can't lie, 27 years in prison on top of the lifetime he'd had before that, that was full of, like I mentioned, a lot of huge challenges. He just was not in good shape by the time he came out. Not for paid employment kinds of things. He and I did launch a very successful, very engaging program of community dialogue about race and racism. So it wasn't like he couldn't do anything, but it was limited. I'm hearing the difficulties he had. And so, you know, visiting him in prison is one way to make friends and hear about this. But now he's living with you 24-7. What were the challenges for you? Because there you have a person who needs a lot of help and who needs to work through things. Yep, that's really true. Um, again, it's a while ago now, and I definitely don't remember the day-to-day -day details that I would have been familiar with at the time. Um, actually, one of the things that comes to mind right away does not really have to do with his adjustments to society, but it has to do again with the issues of race and racism. So here he is, a Black man living in our household. At the time, uh, I have four children, as mentioned earlier. At the time, my two youngest, who are twins, were, I forget, two or three years old when he moved in. And so he would occasionally look after them. And one time he walked downtown with them. They were in the stroller or walking a little bit or whatever. He went downtown with them and things were fine until one of them got upset about something and she started screeching. And you know, a three-year-old can screech pretty good. 
So here's this black man with two small white children, one of whom is screeching. He found himself instantly in a circle of eight armed police officers. Thank God my town, Peekskill, is a relatively calm town and no harm came to him. But when I heard about that, and again, this was early days for me as an anti-racist, but I, I knew enough to know that he could have lost his life right there. It could have been so easy. And, you know, the responsibility would have been mine for sending him off with my two little white girls and not thinking about how that could look to people. So, yes, part of my education was just learning about how it is to be a white person in close proximity with a person of color, especially a black man recently released from prison. Oh, one of the first things that I did the very first day that he came home <laughs> was um, I said, oh, do you want to go with me while I take one of my older children to her art class? And he was like, you know, hey, I'm free. <laughs> After 27 years, I'm free. I'll do whatever. So we got in the car and drove her to her art class. And it wasn't until we got there that I realized that although it's only 20 minutes away, we had crossed the county line. He's not allowed to leave the county. And oh my God, I just broke his parole. <laughs> I did it. You know, he doesn't know where he's going. And he's wearing one of those bracelets, the electronic bracelet. Well, thank goodness that didn't get found out. <laughs> but there were many things like that, that I had to learn how to uh, respect the rules that he was living under that were different from any rules I'd ever lived under. And yeah, it was not always easy living with a person who had literally not crossed a city street in almost 30 years. Again, I live in a small town, you know, it was a lot to partner with him. I think it's probably hard to imagine for somebody who has never been in prison, how much you're not in charge of your life and how big the change is when you come back, right? So you have that to take care of, but then now you are also, you are experiencing the racism he's experiencing on a much closer level. Maybe you knew these things before, but now you can, you might say, well, I'm getting involved. I'm going to do something different. Yet the response of society is not agreeing with you, right? Is acting right. as they always did. So I can imagine there must be some frustration and you probably talked with Tom about this experience and what, you know, what did that lead to? Oh, well, that led, of course, directly to that community dialogue that we established on race and racism. It also led to innumerable conversations. We talked about stuff a lot. I think he was hesitant to in the beginning. I think he, you know, didn't want to alienate the nice white lady who came to visit him for a year and a half before he was released and who then invited him to move in with her family. Um, but he, you know, discovered over time that I was serious, that, you know, I cared about this stuff and I wanted to learn and I wanted to do better. And so he would let me know about any mistakes that I made. Um, he would educate me whether I asked for it or not. He would teach me. I remember the first time that we went in a shop together where when we left the shop, I was the one who was looking for some eyeglasses and he was, you know, simply accompanying me. And when we left, he said that the uh, shopkeepers had followed him and um, 
you know, to him, this was meaningful. He knew what that was about. And I didn't even really get what was he talking about. And when he explained a little more in detail, they were keeping an eye on me as the black man. Uh, it's embarrassing to me to admit this now, but I actually said to him, oh, I don't think that that's true. I think, you know, they maybe they just wanted to find out if you were interested in looking at something for yourself. You know, I had this these white blinders on and he, he set me straight. <laughs> he explained about no, this is the everyday experience of uh, people of color and especially the black man in the shop. And from there on, I was able to see, I saw multiple other instances where when we would go places, he would get tagged and followed. Not me, but him, yes. I remember one time when we were driving someplace, a long trip, and um, I got pulled over by, you know, the, the bubble machine was going on the state trooper's car. But the weirdest thing happened because, you know, I've, I've been driving a long, long time. I've been pulled over a few times. What was so weird to me was that the officer came up to the car on Tom's side, on the passenger side. I've never seen that before, ever. And I am confident that what happened was that he saw that I was driving while with a black man. And he was maybe imagining, oh, she's probably at gunpoint or something. I, you know, I don't know exactly what was in his mind, but I am confident <laughs> that it was the fact that I was a white woman with a black man in the car that caused him to behave in an unusual way and to stop me in the first place. I hadn't done anything wrong. He pulled me over for driving well with a black man. Yeah, those are really, I mean, those are experiences, you know, I'm white too. White people don't have. I have two white children and they are not stopped and if they are they are treated with respect it's very different and I'm also wondering what was the experience for your children because they might not have had the opportunity to meet a black man if not for Tom yes it it is true that where I live now in Peekskill and where I raised all four of my children, it's a much more racially diverse town than the one that I grew up in, in upstate New York. And so there have been some people of color in their lives. But yeah, not, not up close and personal, not like a housemate. So yeah, very much so their, their education was affected. As I say, my, my twins were about three when Tom came to live with us, and my older children were, let me think, like seven and 13. So they were kind of, you know, further along in their growing up, but still young enough that they were able to watch what was going on. I began talking about these things that I was learning alongside Tom. I began coming home from the community dialogues and talking with them about what I heard there. So they were steeped, whether they liked it or not, um, they were steeped. And I am very grateful that it turned out that all four of them actually were, were very open to this. That's why I, why I say, which you quoted when you introduced me, that they teach me every day. It has really come full circle. They often are the ones who sit me down <laughs> and explain some things <laughs> about oppression and systemic racism. Uh, you know, I'll go to them when there's new language or new concepts that I don't understand, and they often will break it down for me. When we watch TV together, they're often the ones who will pick up on, oh, did you notice how they treated the character of color in a particular way that is a pattern? So yeah, all four of them I would say they are all four activists, not in the same degree, 
and not necessarily in the same ways, but um, all four of them are uh, showing up for racial justice. And for you, this friendship with Tom also turned into a professional relationship because you started to have workshops together? Yes, actually, technically, the workshops that I did with Tom were not part of my professional work. They, those were workshops that we did uh, in Quaker communities primarily. And I'll come back to how it led to professional work. But initially, um, I was doing uh, community organizing with Tom. And in particular, we did all kinds of work on race and racism. We, we obviously looked at mass incarceration quite a bit. And in particular, we focused on uh, teaching people about the 13th Amendment. And many people are better educated about that now, ever since Ava DuVernay brought out her documentary, 13th. But before that, most Americans, I'm going to say, even though they may possibly have studied that amendment in high school, didn't have a clue about it. And I actually uh, took it upon myself to memorize that amendment so that I could talk about it um, whenever and wherever. And because it turns out it's only one sentence long, but that one sentence is so treacherous. The 13th Amendment says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So everybody knows that it abolished slavery, but they don't pay attention to that big hunk in the middle that says, except as a punishment for crime. So technically, I think there's over 2 million people in our prisons. Those are our slaves. Technically, they're our slaves. So uh, Tom thought that was pretty bad. And if we had a lot more time on this show, I would tell you many of the truly hair-raising experiences that he had in prison, uh, being treated as a slave and witnessing others. I just want to clarify something because people might say they are in prison, how are they our slaves? But there is prison labor, right? Yes. Well, because the, the amendment allows that we are allowed to have slavery for, in the case where someone is being punished for their crime. So that would equal our incarcerated persons. But yes, you're, you're right that in practice, how that plays out is prison labor and, and ultimately um, having abridged all of the freedoms that you had in your life before incarceration. All of those freedoms have been taken from you. So in that respect as well, you're a slave. So, so we talked about that in our workshops. Then what happened was that because I was doing this kind of community organizing and facilitating and leading dialogue, I was asked by Jeff Hitchcock, who is the executive director at the Center for the Study of White American Culture, if I would um, participate in a leadership team for a program they wanted to do where they, they needed some additional trainers. And I did that and that went well. And um, Jeff and Charlie Flint, who are the co-founders of the center, uh, asked me to come back and do some more work for them. And then down the line, <laughs> I came on board fully and I'm now the director of training there. So for me, there's really a direct connection between the work that I did with Tom, who again, he came along when I already was having my consciousness raised about racism and in particular institutionalized racism. But had it not been for him, I wouldn't have had that direct personal up close view of it and the 
mentor and teacher that he was for me for those several years in the early 2000s. And I, I see how that, you know, led me to really, really dig in and say, this, this is something that's got to stop. And I have to be hard at work on this. And that led then to my saying yes to working with the Center for Study of White American Culture. And that is an interesting name for the study of white American culture, because if you just hear that, you might think, oh, we are going to elevate whiteness. So can you talk a little bit more about what does the center do? What's the mission? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the mission is to decenter whiteness and center a multiracial, anti-racist community. And uh, the name is, as you say, interesting and totally intentional. It actually names exactly, literally what we do. Part of what we do, at least, is to study what is whiteness, what is white American culture, and what does it have to do with race, racism, and white supremacy. And most people, when studying race and racism, focus all of their attention on what is happening to, for, and by people of color. Well, obviously, we need to know way more than we do know, most of us, about what is happening and why for people of color. However, there is also this huge other part of the equation, which is what are white people up to? What is whiteness about? How was that constructed? How did it wind up being the organizing principle and the oppressive principle that it is in U.S. society. So that's what CISWAC is what we call our organization. That's what we are up to, is studying that and doing our best to teach others to pay attention to whiteness and how we can make a huge shift in our society from the centering of a whiteness that is oppressive for everyone else to, as I said, a multiracial, anti-racist society. And you are doing this by holding workshops, right? That's one of the primary ways that we work. Yes, we offer workshops to the public and we also do institutional training for organizations that bring us in to work with their staff. Uh, we have seven different workshops in our public workshops. They range from the 101 and 201, if you will, which might make them sound like, oh, they're the real baby steps. But honestly, they're, they're not so much baby steps yet. You kind of need to have taken a bunch of baby steps before you come into one of our workshops. We're not going to, for instance, spend time arguing whether or not there is such a thing as racism. We know there is. We're working from that premise. But in our 101 and 201, we try to lay out what we consider some of the foundational principles and concepts and language that you need to have to equip you as an anti-racist. We also have a workshop on raising anti-racist white children. We know there's a lot of concern on the part of educators and parents and uh, anybody who's interested in the next generation of anti-racists, and in particular, white anti-racists. That's where a lot of work needs to be done. So we offer that workshop. We have a workshop on accountability. Now, accountability is hugely important, but um, not a place that most white people start. When people take these workshops, what happens for them in the workshops? What are they saying about that experience? And how are things different for them after those workshops? So we've done a lot of workshops with a lot of people, and I've heard a lot of things. But first one that stands out 
is that many people say that they felt, and these, these are somewhat problematic words, but um, they felt safe and comfortable to talk in our workshop. It's not our aim to make white people you know, feel, feel safe and like, oh, there's no challenge here. But it is our aim to engage people. And so many of the people who come to our workshops are very new to anti-racism work. And they're, you know, they're afraid. And they're worried about being shamed and blamed and guilted. So one of the things that we hear is, I did not feel shamed and blamed. And that encouraged me to open up and learn and be willing to engage in the conversation and even take the conversation outside of the workshop. So that is, is really huge because one of our biggest problems in this country is so many people, white people in particular, who just won't even get into the issue, won't even talk about it. They're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. They think the wrong thing in so many cases, just making it possible for people to talk about these things. And then that opens up the whole world of more learning. You said organizations are going to ask you to hold these workshops. Are they asking you one time or they, do they have you come back and work with the same people over and over again? Uh, that's a great question. We have both. Sadly, it is often the case that organizations know that they're supposed to be doing something about this and maybe they've even uh, got some funding that they're supposed to spend on it. Uh, and I'm not saying that this is always the case, but it's not that unusual that an organization will need to check the box. They'll invite us in for the one time and then that's done and they move on. There have been organizations that have said, we really, really want to make change in our institution. And we see that you have a lot to offer. And we have gone in um, multiple times to some organizations. And that's really what it takes. You know, that's what's required for individuals. That's what's required for organizations. This is not a one and done kind of work. This really has to be ongoing work. Um, and also, well, because you said also people know that something has to be changed, but maybe white people feel guilty and shame. So it takes some time to open up. It takes the right environment for them. And I'm also wondering, you know, we are now in 2021. The past year, we have started to talk even more about diversity, inclusion, all the injustices that are happening. More people got involved. Um, on the other end, also, some people who don't like this trend are trying to hinder things. There are a lot of actions to restrict voting rights again. So there is this hope on the one end, and then there is also this suppression on the other end. So I'm wondering what you think are the biggest challenges for the near future in regards to anti-racism work? No question, the backlash that we're seeing, both the voter suppression and also across the country, as you may be aware, um, people have been up in arms about schools teaching anti-racism to whatever extent they may or may not be doing that. It's, it's just a, a huge problem, um, particularly since the people who want to suppress education about race, racism, and anti-racism very readily lie <laughs> about what happens in such an education. And they 
spread misinformation, uh, you know, that uh, our children are going to be taught to hate white people. Our children are going to be taught to kill cops. Our children are going to be taught to be Marxist. Uh, I mean, just absurd, but also terrifying because Americans are so ready to believe this and pour out in the streets once again, but this time to say, don't you dare teach my children critical race theory. So, you know, I do see this as a pretty big issue. And it's certainly not the first time that we've seen some gains followed by huge pushback. That seems to be the way this has been going for the hundreds of years that there has been such a thing as a system of racism. But I guess for right now, um, it is important to focus on the voting issues and the education issues. And you said that, and I think that is really true. If we look back into history, we do learn there was a movement. We thought something would change. Something did change. There was backlash. Maybe 20, 30 years later, another attempt. So it, there seems to be this pattern of attempting something, yet repression. But maybe every time we attempt, do we get one step further? Of course, is one step enough, right? And so I'm wondering... Where do you see the successes and what are your hopes? First, I want to mention that I believe that Malcolm X is the one who said, and this is a paraphrase, said words to the effect that if you stick a knife nine inches into me and then you draw it out three inches, is that better? We have made gains. There's no question we have made gains and there's also no question that white supremacy is a beast that shapes and conforms to the times and just keeps coming at us. So um, my hopes are that people, especially white people who have begun to become more conscious of what's happening, will take that on seriously, will not go back to sleep, if you will, will not let it go, will continue to learn as much as they can and to pass that on as much as they can. My hope is that it's a fact, as I heard from Daniel Hunter, he's a white anti-racist activist who wrote a workbook guidebook to go along with the new Jim Crow about mass incarceration. And Daniel Hunter said at a conference I attended that an oppressive system is innately unstable, you know, because, because there's wrong. Wrong is built into it. Injustice is built into it. And that's not stable. So my hope is that he's correct and that we can topple this thing. And my hope is that this will happen in my lifetime. I imagine that might sound absurd, but I do know that people actually can change. It's part of the nature of human beings to be malleable. And my hope is that enough people will realize, oh, here's another specific hope that I have, is that more white people will come to realize that white supremacy is harming white people too. So even if you don't know, don't care about what's happening for people of color, maybe you might care about that your own family, your own community is being harmed by that. Um, you can learn more about that by reading or watching anything by Heather McGee. She's talking about the costs of racism for all of us. And my hope is that once white people do that kind of work, we would also be 
freed from the shame and guilt that sometimes prevents us from even caring about the lives of people of color. I think that sounds great. And I'm also thinking that with every generation that is raised by anti-racist parents, right? They have a new normal. Like your kids have a different normal than you had. Their kids have a different normal. So in that sense, you know, this spreads out. So there is hope that younger generations will want something that's very different. Yes, uh, that is 100% accurate that teaching and raising our children in a different way makes a difference. I have to quickly say, because so many people come to our workshops, especially the Raising Anti-Racist White Children one, with the misconception that because they see young people today often mixing racially, you know, the white kids do have friends of color, maybe even good friends of color. Um, they see that happening and they immediately jump to, oh, racism is over. Those kids are post-racial. They got this. That is so not true. It's unfortunately in some sense the opposite because white kids have learned to behave in certain ways and say certain things and so on. And the internalized racism that they carry and their part in um, the racial systems that they can't help but be complicit with, they're, they're clueless about that. So it is not the same thing as being anti-racist. I just had to say that on the side. And that's a good point, because I do remember when Barack Obama became president, there was a little bit of that feeling to, oh, this isn't really racism. We do have a black president, right? But that's not enough. I think it's going to change when we care about how people in these underserved communities live, when we care about that they have resources, that we're not saying they have to pull themselves out by their own bootstraps when they have no boots, when we think that their well-being affects our well-being, right? That's right. When we come to have empathy, which studies show that white people, very generally speaking, do not have empathy for people of color, when we develop that empathy for people of color, and when we, I say we meaning white people, uh, when we come to care about ourselves enough to recognize how we have been damaged and destroyed by oppressing people, then I think that there is a lot of room for, we can do better than this. We can do so much better and we want to do better. Yeah, so in conclusion, I guess, it means the work is ongoing. Let's stick with it. Let's not give up no matter how hard it might get. That's right. And I appreciate your time and I thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you too so much again. Thank you for inviting me. And I encourage everyone to come and sign up for some of our workshops. Let's do that education and learning and equipping together. What Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Braberman and original music by Max Elias.